opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB and WomenToWatch.net. We're going to have a, a really wonderful show today. I'm actually going to have uh, three guests, one including our, um, I, I call her my partner in crime, Dr. Beth Dupree, and she'll be joining us later this afternoon in the show. She is in California at a conference. And the first um, order of business is to introduce someone who's going to be an ongoing contributor to the show. Her name is Tish Squilero, and Tish is the CEO and founder of Candor Consulting. Uh, she was also a guest on the show way back when I when I first launched the show. She's also an author. Uh, she wrote a book called Head Trash, which is a one of my favorite books of all time for um, helping business people. And uh, Chish, I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you, Susan. I'm excited to be here and part of the team. Great. And you're calling in from New York, is that right? That is correct. I'm on the road as usual. On the road. Okay. <laughs> the glory of radio, right? You can be on the road and, and, and doing a segment on radio. I love it. Listen, I want to get right to um, some of the topics you wanted to cover today because, um, you know, we don't have – never have enough time. And just to give the listeners a sense of Candor Consulting and what you do, you know, you're obviously a, a an a, executive coach and advisor and a consultant and a lot of the work that you do stems from um, people's behavioral uh, style and how they how they work as leaders in their businesses and companies and um, the first I guess you know uh, segment that you wanted to cover this month has to do with exactly that people's behavioral profile so for the listeners, let's start with how they would be able to find out their style. Sure. And, you know, I've been working for the last 15 years with executives, professionals, both right out of college or, you know, 20 years in business. And there's a consistency to where leadership and continuity of scaling your business or your career come into play. And the first is always about knowing. Know about yourself. Know about how you make decisions. Know about your audience to which you're working. It's that self-awareness that you need to keep as part of your arsenal when you're out there. And we forget it because we get so comfortable in what we do and, and when we're doing it that we don't always pay attention to how we're doing it. So one of the first things I offer my clients when I'm working with them and businesses as well as individuals is let's figure out the no part. Who are we? What do we like? How do we make decisions? Because it's the perception of what others see that sometimes we forget and don't play and think that plays a role. So when you want to figure out your style, well, one, a very simple way is do some feedback around people who know you and ask them, you know, a couple of easy questions as to how they perceive you when in a conflict. How are you engaging when something new is happening? I mean, that is one very inexpensive, quick way to figure out what others are thinking of when they think of you. 
And, you know, sometimes people will be very comfortable to be honest. Other times they might not always tell you everything they want to tell you, just what you want to hear. And when it's that case, I would recommend behavioral profiles, which are inexpensive and very simple to use because they're usually not time-consuming. The one I mirrored our business off of, both this business, the book that we wrote, as well as the product I'm launching around, you know, really knowing, preparing for where you're going next in life, is called DISC. And I use it an awful lot to giving people a self-awareness of how they engage, communicate, and act with others in all sorts of situations so that they're more prepared and how their choice-making has a better benefit. Um, Tish, just so the listeners understand, it, it's, it, you said DISC, D-I-S-C, correct? Yes. I think a lot it's of an people... acronym. Yes. Go ahead. So if you Google just D-I-S-C, you'll be able to look it up. It's a behavioral profile that allows you to understand your engagement and your communication style. It's been around since the 50s. It was started initially for the government to look at how would they build great teams to work together if they don't know each other. How do we know how to take people who are really strong at what they do but bring them together as a group to solve problems? So they had a special task force that they would want to build to go out on certain missions, and this is how they would make their selection process. And funny enough, over the the course of the last 50 years, companies now adopted this as a way to understand teams, a way to bring teams together, a way to hire people to, to join teams, because what it gives you is the underneath understanding of what someone's mindset is like when they're engaging with another, when they're looking at situations that might be stressful, how will that person respond? And DISC stands for the four different types of behaviors. D is for the dominant direct style. I is for the influencing engager style. S is for the steady, scalable continuity style. And C is for the compliant, practical, logical style. All of them make up us as people, but there'll be one or two that really drive us as individuals, also make us who we are. We're going to want to know where we are there because we'll then be able to understand and appreciate those around us to be effective when working with more than just yourself. Okay, so a lot of people are probably familiar with the Myers-Briggs test. I know I was from way back when. And I think there's a difference if if I understand that, you know, that speaks more to human personality versus your style or profile. Is that correct? Well, Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, there's a lot of behavioral profiles out there. They're all very competent. They're all very good. And I recommend that if you're married to one over the other, anything that gives you self-awareness, I'm a fan of because it'll make you better prepared. <laughs> Correct. However, why I chose DISC for my business is that DISC is actionable. So once you relate to where you are, it gives you a roadmap to how you can proceed either differently or um, appreciate another style to get to where you're going. I found that some of the others are more reflective, mm-hmm. so they allow you to have a inner workings of how things operate for you in your mind and more self-internal. I find DISC is a little bit more external because it allows you to see what the impact is externally. And it's a little more straightforward and not as um, – There's a lot of interpretation when you take a profile because nothing is an exact science. There's no one profile out there that's going to depict you 150%. But there are some who can really get it a little bit closer than the others. I would say for me, DISC has become actionable in being effective as a leader and being a great manager and understanding how to build teams and companies. 
I have found that to be most successful using this profile. Tish, do you find that there's certain styles that are better than others uh, when it comes to leadership? No, I think that all four of the styles are strong. All four of the styles have leadership capabilities, and all four of them, when overdone, can cause destruction. Equally, all four can be a leader, a manager, a wonderful parent, a great coach on the soccer field. It's just important to know what you are. Because once you start to align yourself to others, you're going to need to know where you are first before you can engage with another. So to me, any style is capable of achieving success as long as you have a better self-awareness. It's like a mirror. I mean, before we head out, it's always nice to know what we look like and how we're put together so we have an image of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, I view these profiles the same way. If you're out there not knowing what you look like or how you're acting, well, then the perception of you is going to be misunderstood. Same thing with this. If you have a better sense of how you engage and who you are, you'll be more self-confident. And to me, leadership is having an air of confidence that allows you to, A, admit when you're wrong, but also admit when you know you can help. And it's those traits of leadership that come from being more prepared and aware. Well, I, you know, that's it's so true. I mean, I feel that as if self-awareness is everything. Certainly, the more self-aware you are, the better you're going to do in life and in, and in business. And I, I'm curious as to how you deal with executives and leaders who perhaps um, are not comfortable with looking at that. You know, they, they really just want to take care of the tasks at hand and do the job. And how do you persuade some of these uh, executives to, um, you know, to dive in and, and do some self-analyzing? Sure, and I like to call them blind spots because no one intentionally doesn't want to see some of their areas that need some some work, but there are blind spots that we just don't recognize. I have a slew of them, which is how I wrote my first book, Head Trash, is that emotions get in my way when I'm making decisions, so I'm no different than everyone else. I think the blind spots are ways in which I can bring out in folks habits that they're forming that may not be such great habits. And I don't ever change someone, and I've been working now for a long time with all levels of executives, brilliant people. Most of them know all the right answers. I'm not there to give the answers. I'm there to hold up the mirror and say, see, these are the habits to which you're making that choice. These are the habits that got you to this place. Are they good habits or bad habits? When you highlight that they're bad habits, then no surprise you've got bad outcomes. When you bring out better habits or more positive habits, you're going to have better outcomes. So what I try to do is highlight the blind spots that we didn't recognize, show where it's a habit that's not delivering good results, and say, why don't we look at forming another habit? And to me, that's the learning loop of how coaching is done. We don't come in as consultants or coaches and change people. People don't change that readily, and nor do we expect them to. It's who we are. But when you have bad habits, typically you've got some bad outcomes. What we look at is how do we help your habits to become more positive, more engaging, more effective, so that your outcomes are more engaging, more positive, and more effective. It sounds like, um, you know, a, a great thing that, that everybody should have. And whether you are, you know, an entrepreneur in a small business or, you know, the CEO of a major company, um, and, and actually, I, you know, when you're working with these people, do you see a difference between the small uh, entrepreneur and, and a corporate executive? 
No, not really. Because habits and, and style are no matter, and not a title. Right. And not it's an pe- industry. It's human it's behavior. Really people. Right. And I was going to add to executives, I think it's also in everyday life. I mean, I find DISC a life tool. Mm-hmm. I find the, 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 the head trash, you know, philosophy a, a, a life skill. These are not things made just for business. Because remember, as people, we take ourselves to our careers. So first I start off with who are you as an individual. And to me, either you're a parent or a grandparent or a young student right out of college or someone who's been working for five to ten years, really your behaviors and your habits, they're yours, but we all have them. So it's very relevant that as we're working through life, we might pick up some good ones and we might pick up some bad ones. And what we want to be able to do is reflect to know when we're doing that. We want to emphasize on the good ones, and we want to certainly figure out how we picked up these bad ones. Right. I know as a parent with an 11- and 12-year-old, I'm doing that all the time, and I'm trying to guide them. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they're going to be on their own and make their own choices in fifth and seventh grade. I don't go to school with them. Right. So who they bring <laughs> to school is who they are, though I'd love to go and just kind of make sure they do all the right thing all the time. Right. What I'm finding is they don't. And then you get the notes from the teachers like, uh, we missed this. <laughs> So it's, it happens everywhere, and we shouldn't get, you know, angry, and we shouldn't um, disappoint ourselves, right? Because the one thing I find with coaching is it's not a time to yell or sell. It's a time to teach and motivate. So whatever you're doing, either for yourself or for another, it's not the time to take this to be a yelling, screaming moment or get mad at somebody. It's a time to see this as a learning experience and try to teach them something. And you'd be surprised. People like to learn things all the time. Where we get caught is how you're actually delivering your message. And to me, that's a big part of once you're self-aware, plan two is how do you plan the actions next to make this to be effective? And that's what I'd like to focus on when we talk next month is, okay, now you know a little bit more about you. What are you going to do with it? Because without having an action item, it's just another thing that sits on your shelf. I want you to be able to take this information and do something with it. Right, right. Excellent. Great, great advice, Tish. Um, For the listeners, I want you to know that you can um, find out more about Tish's work at candorconsulting.com. And when you go to her website, it's candor. Is it underscore or dash? It's candor-consulting.com. And um, as you said, next month we're going to talk about, you know, people's roadmap. What do you, you know, now that you've been motivated to make a change and, and do something um, for yourself, how are you going to do that? What steps? So um, I'm thrilled for you to be joining us every month, Tish. You're, you have, you're so full of common sense. You really are. And you deliver your um, ex- expertise and advice in such an um, easy-to-understand manner. So I'm grateful for you joining us, and I'm going to let you get back to your work in New York. I know you're a busy lady. Well, thank you, Susan. And, and honestly, people can reach out to me at any time through Candor or even check out headtrash911.com, two avenues to really learn a little bit more about how behaviors and your style and your approach with others really matters a great deal. Yeah. You, you know, you'll be happy to know I just lent your book to a friend of mine who's starting her new business. I gave it to her Fabulous. over the weekend. Yep. All right. Tish. Well, we'll have a second one coming out in March for those who want to know how to live or work with someone who has it. So I'm trying to cover all the bases. Not only do you know you have it, 
but so does everyone around you. How do you work with that? So that'll be something we can talk about towards the end of the year. That sounds great. And I'm, I'm going to uh, introduce our guest today who I will be connecting you with, you know, after the show. Um, as you know, Deborah Schaefer is joining us here in the studio. Uh, Deborah Schaefer, CEO and founder of Education Navigation. So I'll connect the two of you um, later on, okay? Sounds wonderful. Have a great show. Thanks, Tish. Um, so, bye-bye. bye-bye. Um, so now, as I, as I just mentioned, I do have a guest in the studio with me, and her name is Deborah Schaefer, and she is the CEO and founder of Education Navigation, uh, which was founded in 2011, so it's been almost four years now. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Um, I want to um, give the listeners a little bit of sense, uh, or a sense rather, of who you are and where you came from. You are a local Philadelphia woman, mm-hmm. and I understand you were uh, born and raised until your teenage years in Winfield, Pennsylvania. That is correct. Yeah. Talk about those years for a little bit. Oh, it was wonderful. Winfield back then was very much like a small community. People knew each other. Um, there was a local butcher up the street and I would walk to elementary school and, you know, the parents were all out on the porches yelling at the other kids and making sure that everybody was safe. And it was, it was a wonderful time. And there are people who grew up in Winfield who share the same sorts of feelings about that time. It was a very special time. It was a village, as they say. Correct. Right? It was. It definitely was. <laughs> I grew up the same way. Everyone in the neighborhood had the key to everyone else's house. Very much the same. Yeah, yes. that would never be the case today. No, it would not. Um, and then, so you moved to Upper Bucks County, which is such a beautiful area. I happen to have five sister-in-laws, and several of them live up there, so I'm very familiar with that. And it is horse country, and I understand you moved up there because because your dad wanted to pursue the horse uh, industry. Correct. What was he doing at the time? Well, prior to the move to Upper Bucks County, he was, I think he was a regional sales manager or a salesperson for a um, shipping company, but he had always been interested in the horse business. So we made a family decision to make the move. We were going to do it for a year and see how that worked up to Upper Bucks County, and it turned out to be far longer than a year. And he was in the horse business, the standard bred horse business, or harness horse racing. Mm -hmm. And we had a horse farm at the time, which was located today on the property of St. Mary Hospital. That's where the farm was. Okay. So we had our own horses, and then he boarded horses, and he was a trainer and a driver and an owner, and he did a lot of traveling to Pocono Downs at the time. There was Liberty. Bell Racetrack, which is now where that mall in the Northeast is located. I can't think of the name the of Chamonix? it. The Chamonix? No, the, the, um, it'll come to me, but wherever that property is, there was yeah. Liberty Bell Racetrack then and Dover Downs. And so we did a lot of traveling with him, particularly over the summer. One summer we lived up in the Poconos for the entire summer because we raced up there. Wow. So it was, it was an, it was a very interesting sort of a transition from, Winfield to Upper Bucks County. It was particularly difficult for my mother and for myself. I was 13 at the time, and you know that's a Mm, pretty pivotal age age. to be leaving friends and leaving family and leaving everything that's familiar. Um, The other component of it was having made that move, it was the first time that I really experienced any element of bullying. And that was because we were one of only two Jewish families in the entire school district. So I was on the receiving end of it, and my brother was on the receiving end of it, particularly on the bus. And that was very difficult because that was very unfamiliar. I didn't understand why were people talking about us that way and why were people calling us names. I had never experienced that before. So in a way, in my early years, that gave me a sense of you need to really learn to advocate for yourself. Mm. You need to be able to 
speak up and say what you're saying isn't true, it isn't kind, it isn't nice, and, you know, making your voice heard. So that was that was the transition to Upper Bucks County. Yeah, I'm uh, curious when you went home and, and told your parents about the, you know, the experiences you were having in school and what was their advice to you? Well, my, my mother in particular, she was very unhappy about it. And um, I think I've learned a lot about how to advocate in my life from my mother because she would go into school and talk to the principal. She would go into school and talk to the teachers. Um, she made it clear that this was not acceptable. And I learned from her that there's a right and a wrong. There's a kind and an unkind. And people were being very unkind. And we were new to the area. We didn't know anyone. We, we couldn't walk anywhere. There were no traffic lights. There was no public transportation. I mean, it was truly a different sort of a it's society. Very, yeah, it's very rural. Very you know. much so. But yes. today, of course, it's different. Back then, it was, as I said, the big the big excitement we would have is if the cow down the road had a calf. <laughs> and we would all run down to see the cow having a calf. Right. Well, that was very different than me living in Winfield and having acting lessons and violin lessons. And it was a very different sort of a culture. Um, but it taught me a lot. Did it, you come really to embrace did. it eventually? Or do you think you always kind of miss that city feel? I absolutely miss the... I would say my early years from birth till 13. You can't replicate that. And it was a struggle. I mean, Mm -hmm. as I said, I was 13 years old. Teenage years were, it was a struggle. Mm -hmm. And I was happy to move. I was happy to leave that area. But like I said, today, it's very different. It is, yes. There are housing developments and shopping centers and traffic lights and things that we didn't have back then. Sidewalks. Right, sidewalks, exactly. We didn't have that back then. Right. Well, that's an interesting part of your story because I can see that, you know, 13 is a very formidable age. And you were learning for the first time to kind of stand up for yourself. Yes. Um, So then you went off to Penn State University. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you had dreams and aspirations of becoming a journalist. Um, What do you think it was that uh, had you make that decision at that time? Well, I started out in college in two different majors. I started out as a psychology major, but that just wasn't working for certain reasons. And then I decided, because I had taken many years of Spanish, that I would become a Spanish major and become an interpreter at the Philadelphia airport. And I thought, nah, that's not really what I want to do. And it was a (laughs) friend of mine who said, well, you know, what is it you really like? And I said, I really like the news I really like the news. And he said, well, why don't you major in that? And I, at the time, I thought you needed to be from the Paley family to get into journalism. I didn't realize it was something you could study. When I realized it was something you could study, end of story. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you have a, you know, a genuine curiosity about what's going on around us and, you know, current events and, and all of that. I am so, a news junkie. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I fully admit I'm a news junkie. Yeah. I have the news I on am most well. of the time. I am as well. And when I start to get anxious because there's a lot of bad news, I turn it off. I give myself a break. Um, so your career, you know, if I look at chronologically what you did, um, you, you know, you, did, you started out in marketing and PR. And um, in, in the 80s, in 1988, you established an HR consulting firm Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, you know, what I read was that you had this interest in human, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Not behavior, but um, 
recruiting the right types of people for businesses and companies, and that kind of sparked an interest in you in the HR field. Where did that come from? Talk about Let's talk about your first job out of Penn State and what led to that. Well, my first job out of Penn State, I was working, I was very fortunate at the time, I was hired to work in the advertising department of a newspaper, and I was there for probably two years. And one of the things that became apparent to me was I was hearing colleagues talk about work-life struggles, but back then it wasn't called work-life struggles. This one couldn't go to his son's softball game at 3 o'clock. This one had to take her daughter for weekly allergy shots at 11 o'clock in the morning and had to use vacation time. And I remember way back then thinking, something's wrong with this business model. Something about this just isn't working. We have top performers, employees, who are struggling to live, who are struggling with the day-to-day issues of raising a family. And while I didn't do anything about it at that time, it was kind of that germ, that little bud in the brain that I kept thinking something about this just doesn't quite seem right to me. And it took a number of years, and you know, I made some different changes. I worked for an advertising agency and public relations firm, and you know, I did a bunch of different things. And then when I had my own firm, I started doing HR advising and HR consulting in the work-life arena. And a subset of that business was a flexible work options job matching site. So what we were doing back then, which was very cutting edge, was taking professional mothers and dads, primarily moms, and aligning them with companies looking for a part-time accountant, a part-time director of marketing, a part-time whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And we were matching them together. So it was kind of through the flexible work options area of work-life integration that my interest really began because companies were looking. It was a time where budgets were being slashed, but they still needed people to handle certain roles. Well, how do you do that? Well, if you think about flexible work options, that's one of the ways. Part-time, job sharing, telecommuting. Today, that's very commonplace, but back then it really wasn't. So that that kind of sparked the interest in terms of work-life integration, and that's continued since the 90s up till today. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that you you noticed it when you said you had that little you know um, that little thought in your mind. You were noticing that something was amiss and something needed to be done. And I want you to talk about the difference between work life balance, which we both know there's no such thing, and work life integration, and why it's important to you that we term it that way. I. I blog about this, I tweet about this, I write about this, and I speak about this, and I always have. The, the, the term work-life balance never made sense to me, and it still doesn't, because you can't balance something that every day presents itself with different issues, different constraints, different obstacles. You're trying to integrate. You're trying to integrate your professional life, whatever that may be. It doesn't mean that you have to be a CEO. You can be working a part-time position. It's irrelevant. But you're trying to integrate what you do to generate an income to support yourself and your family with those needs of your family. And those needs of your family change all the time, particularly if you're a working parent. They change constantly. So to try to achieve a balance, you're never going to get there. 
right. to try to integrate and recognizing and having businesses recognize as well that that integration takes daily navigating. It's a daily struggle. Something that's working on Monday morning, I guarantee you by Wednesday afternoon, it's not working anymore. Well, not only that, unforeseen things happen every oh, day. Absolutely. We plan our day and it never goes the way we planned. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's why for me, I don't talk about or address it as work-life balance. I address it as work-life integration for that, for those reasons. And and what are some of the, you know, for the people that are listening, work-life integration, I mean, it, it to them, uh, it's their every day, as you said, it's trying to get through your, your profession and your work and, and be taking care of your family's needs at the same time and not feeling the overwhelm. What are some of the tools that you educate people or provide parents specifically with in order to do that? Well, one of them is what we just talked about, flexible work options. Companies today are making steps in that arena. They're making steps in terms of flexible work. You can telecommute a few days a week, or you can work from home full-time, or we're going to give you X amount of weeks for parental leave. So companies are, are making strides in that area. The issue remains utilization. That's the key issue. You can have a wonderful company policy, and the seat from the CEO down can say, this is part of our mission. This is part of our culture. But if the reality kind of on the kind of feet on the street is that they're not using it, well, it doesn't really matter very much. And we have a lot of obstacles in that area. There are obstacles for parents who are raising children with special needs. There are obstacles for employees who have their own mental health issues. There are obstacles for employees who have child care needs and elder care needs. There are obstacles for employees who have marital issues and financial issues and legal issues. There are lots of obstacles. So unless we address business from a flexibility model, flexibility being a broad, broad term, we're missing the mark. We're providing these wonderful on-paper policies and programs, many of which are certainly being utilized, but the utilization numbers aren't in yet. And we can't really see whether the culture within every company, large and small, is really saying, here's the policy, this is what you can do, and we're encouraging you to do it. So how do you how do you get companies to embrace this and, oh, and take process. on these new right because whenever you know a company is is integrating its you know itself with new programs it does it takes a long time first you have to kind of convince um, executives that it's necessary and needed and then they have to go through the process of doing it how do you do that well one of the one of the ways is to make sure that human resources has a seat at the table. That's really critical. Many times, and anyone that's listening that's in the HR field, I feel your pain because I understand <laughs> it very well. HR needs to have a seat at the table, and have, they have to be able to discuss the employee relations issues that are impacting the workforce. Because they hear them firsthand. Of course. Yes. They absolutely hear it first firsthand. Many times they need to pilot certain programs to see whether or not this is going to work. Another component is internal communications is absolutely critical. If you look at employee benefits, there's always open enrollment and, you know, there are vendors coming in and giving all this information. Employees don't understand half of it. They don't even understand what a deductible is in terms of health care. So when you're talking about these other sorts of policies and other sorts of programs, it can be overwhelming. So the internal communications has to be very, very sharp. It needs to also be ongoing as well. 
Um, I want to uh, take a break. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. And when we come back, I really want to get into what precipitated your decision to start Education Navigation. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and WomenToWatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm being joined uh, this afternoon by Deborah Schaefer. Deborah is the CEO and founder of Education Navigation, um, which is, I think I have a great one-liner for what exactly that is. Um, and this came from a testimonial uh, that I read on the work that Deborah's doing. She takes a systematic approach, which combines both the needs of parents to advocate and ensure the educational success of their special needs children and also the needs as working professionals. Um, I, I read that and I thought, okay, that gave me a really good grasp of the work that you do. And of course, special needs children are a big piece of the work that you're doing and why you advocate for parents so strongly. So let's talk about what precipitated your decision um, to start Education Navigation. Absolutely. I was working in the corporate arena, and um, my son at the time was attending a private school, and he was struggling. There were some issues. And during the summer between his first grade and second grade year, I made the decision to leave my corporate position and to homeschool my son, which I did for the entire year of his second grade educational career. I also homeschooled him twice um, beyond that as well for, I think it was sixth grade and half of seventh grade. And it was clearly the best decision I ever made. And, and I, I'm just going to stop for a moment and say, any working parent that's listening, whether you have a child with special needs or not, you are faced with daily difficult decisions. You're faced with decisions in terms of, can I continue to work full time or do I become a stay-at-home parent? Can we afford financially to make these decisions? What do I need to be doing today? It's a daily decision-making obstacle that you face, and I, I totally understand it. For me, leaving the corporate arena and homeschooling my son, as I said, was the best decision I ever made. It gave me an opportunity to really understand his learning style and his learning profile and where the struggles were. Academically, he's been gifted since four years old. He was reading, completely reading with comprehension. So it was never an academic issue, but there were other struggles. He was bullied in school quite a bit. Um, and during that peri early period of time, while I was homeschooling him, I began to read federal and state special education law and started going for advanced training. Yale School of Medicine, Penn State, Lehigh University, U.S. Department of Education. I did a lot of advanced training and realized that parents weren't fully understanding not just their rights, but what it is they're supposed to do to help ensure that their children are getting what they need in school. The other piece of it is because I come from an HR background, I also know that there knew that there was a gap in terms of what services and supports are still and were being provided to working parents. Companies today are doing a great job from birth through kindergarten. There are on-site child care centers. They provide um, 
you know, money to help with child care needs. But then the child starts school. And if there are issues, what happens then? There's a huge gap, what I call, used to call education care, between the start of school and well past college when you have a child who has special needs. So, for example, if you have a child with a learning disability or you have a child with ADD, it doesn't go away in a year. If anything, as the child grows, it intensifies. The gap grows wider and their needs grow greater which requires parents to have the flexibility, getting back to the flexibility piece, Mm -hmm. to be able to address and handle these needs. Companies are not quite getting that message yet, and there are are certain inherent barriers to that. I've heard over the years, perhaps not directly but indirectly, that if you have a child with special needs, how far are they actually going to go? Well, if we look at people like Richard Branson, who's dyslexic, and other people, high-profile individuals in the world of business and entertainment who are coming forward with their own disability. I can't think of the name of the woman. Who's the woman that plays What's-Her-Face on Star Wars? Carrie Fisher. Okay. Carrie Fisher just came out last week talking about her years of struggles with addiction and bipolar disorder. Well, this is real stuff. So it's not a question of can children with special education needs succeed. They most certainly can. They're succeeding right now. The the caveat is they need more of their parents. And in order for their parents to have more time and more expertise, they need the flexibility. And they also need support. They need they need to be coached. They need to understand this is what this is what you should be doing. This is what school's not telling you that you can do. And that's where we come in. So you really had a perspective from both sides. Because, again, as a parent, you know, advocating for your son. Yes. And then working in HR. When the work that you do today, how much of each are you working on on a day-to-day basis? Help me understand what you mean. In other words, um, educating and, and bringing awareness to parents about what's available to them through their children's school years and then working with companies to get them to embrace um, and and put into place programs for their employees. It's a combination of both. The the outreach efforts to companies is ongoing through social media, through speaking that I do, whether it's in corporations or on panel discussions. And with parents, that's an everyday occurrence. We get calls, we get emails every day from parents at all different levels. You know, that's the other that's the other component of this. I personally have worked with, you know, people from the C-suite, CEOs, senior level executives, business leaders, entrepreneurs who are very successful in terms of their business lives, but their ability to transfer that expertise, that business expertise, when you're sitting in a school meeting with eight people telling you about your child, those skills go out the window. They forget how do you negotiate, how do you effectively communicate, how do you document. Those skills just disappear. And the reason is when you're talking to these individuals about business, they're coming from their head. When you're talking about parents or their their child, they're coming from their heart. Right. And my job and our job is to shift that less from the heart, more from the head, because special education is a business issue. These are business issues. It just up until this point, it hasn't really been addressed that way. And that's how we're trying to shift that from being, right. you know, a softy sort of a touchy feely area to uh uh-uh, uh, this is business. 
You go into a school meeting, you better have your agenda, you better have your data, you better have your experts, you better know the law, you better understand your child's diagnosis. There's a lot involved. Yeah. Has it been helpful to you in the work that you're doing that people, you know, high profile people are coming out and talking about their own issues? It has in terms of helping their organization get it. Because when the CEO or someone from the C-suite is forthcoming and says, I have a child with fill in the blank, and my workforce knows it, it's a lot easier to have employees, managers and employees, say, wait a second, I do as well. I did a training a number of years ago at a financial services firm in New York, and the HR director was kind of, I'm not really sure whether this is an area of interest. Well, it was an area of interest. And the training ended at 1.30. I stayed till 5.30, sitting on the floor with four employees who basically blew off their afternoon of work to talk about their specific children. But the other piece of it was they began to form an informal support group. Now, companies have ERGs, employee resource groups. They have them for all different kinds of subset areas. Mm-hmm. But watching parents looking at each other in this training room, oh, you have a child with? I didn't know that. I have a child with, too. They began an informal support network, and that's the most important because you're at work, what, eight hours a day, nine hours a day, ten hours a day? If it hits the fan, you want to know that there's someone else that could possibly cover for you, that someone understands what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of issues involved. There are really a lot of issues. Um, I want to take a a moment to welcome Dr. Dupree to the show. She's on the line. I can hear her, Dr. Dupree. Hi, ladies. How are you? How are you doing today? We're good. Say hello to Deborah, Deborah Schaefer. Hey, Deborah, I actually think I might have met your dad at one point. I started at St. Mary, and I did meet a beautiful gentleman who had a horse farm where the hospital sits. No. And that happened to be, have been. Are it, you serious? It, was, it wasn't St. Mary. Yeah, I did uh, about 25 years ago. Oh, my goodness. We're going to have to talk. Yes, it pro- if it was, a, I know. If it was a, a man who kind of looked like my, my friends in high school always put on their makeup when they came to visit me because my father looked like a combination between Clint, Clint Eastwood and someone else. So <laughs> if he had that sort yeah, of a look. I, I, I believe I did have the pleasure, and we will have to talk offline. I actually heard that when I was tuning in to tune in radio to listen. Oh, interesting. And, uh, anyway. Small I, I world. Love, There's I always love- a connection, right, Beth? I know, I know, and I love the way there is no such thing as work-life balance. I always tell everybody when I give talks, they say, you know, you don't find a box of balance sitting in your kitchen cupboard that you pull out in the morning and say, let me have a bowl of because it really is, it's about trying to, it's about trying to create um, the very best that you can for your situation so that you can accomplish the most important task, which is parenting, and your work task, which, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. I, I, it's my, it's been my thing every single day of my life, and now that my kids are older, it's just about finding that time to make sure that you get to those things when they live in different cities that really matter to them. Because I need, like, I need, you know, months of advanced uh, notice to do scheduling. But anyway, it's all good. I'm, uh, I'm actually in California, in San Diego, at an amazing conference. It's called the uh, um, Academy for Integrative Health and Medicine. And so I'm with about a 1,000 like-minded individuals who are really taking um, health care to a different level by, you know, looking at all of the things that we need to do to repair our broken health care system in the United States and, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of the, a lot of the things that, that we believe are connected to so much of an increase in um, childhood learning issues 
come from, the food allergies and the, the way that we've trashed our biome, we've trashed our organisms that live in our, all those little bugs that live in our GI tract that help us process the foods that we eat and, you know, clean sourcing of food. So, so much of it is just, it's like the common sense of let's go back to basics. And you know what, and, uh, you know what Beth, the other thing is in terms of the entire healthcare arena, when we're talking about healthcare in the workplace, the issues of stress and mental health for uh, employees and particularly for working parents, the research is just off the charts. You know, we've got more and more working parents who are leaving the workforce because they simply yeah. cannot juggle. juggle. And the, the truth is, if you've got you know, if we're talking about any of the children who have special needs, the impact goes far beyond work and life. And if we talk about life, it goes to marriages, it goes to finances, Absolutely. it goes to stress, it goes to mental wellness, it goes to all of this. So part of what we talk about when we talk about education navigation is this is a health and wellness issue. We can't not look yep. at the mental health component and the stress component, because as a physician, you well know the impact of stress, particularly if it's continuous if it's at a level that you just don't get a break it's going to start having your you're gonna you're going to start to break down body mind it's spirit all of it absolutely it's constant bombardment of your system with cortisol and cortisol is your stress hormone and mm. when you have constant stress and constant stress you never get out of the fight and flight you sleep that poorly um stress is one thing it's been on everybody every single speaker every speaker has brought up stress mm-hmm. because stress is that one thing that you know, a lot of people think they can't control their stress, but a lot of the stress is something that people say, well, I do this job because, and then they give you this litany of things, well, you make more money doing it, you do this, it's like, but does it make you happy? Does it bring you joy? Do you get up in the morning and hop out of bed and say, wow, I can't wait to go make a difference today? It's, and it's I, I'll tell you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The vast majority, vast majority of people that I meet in my office who are diagnosed with breast cancer either have bad work, bad marriage, bad relationships. I mean, they are coming into breast cancer really, like, overwhelmed with life. And, you know, it doesn't mean that they're causing it themselves. It means that we're not taking a look in the mirror and saying, who am I, what matters to me, what is my passion and purpose in life, and kind of going to that place of saying, yeah, maybe I don't need to make as much money, but, you know, if I wake up and I can find bliss and joy in my life every day, what a great thing that's going to be. That is so, so well said. And and we're ta- if we're talking about employees in particular, the whole issue of mental health in the workplace is huge, and it's not being addressed because you hear, you know, an employee will come into their manager and say, I'm really feeling stressed. Oh, you know, go have a glass of wine or, you know, go out and take a jog. Well, no, that doesn't necessarily do it because if it's the kind of unrelenting stress that you and I are talking about, that's not going to do right. it. You know, and what Absolutely. happens then is then it manifests into depression, anxiety, you know, other mental health issues. And that the impact is far reaching. It, it, it's far reaching in the workplace and it's far reaching for the individual and certainly far reaching for the family as well. I, I had the pleasure and the honor yesterday of listening to Dean Orner speak and actually talking to him after the conference. And it's his, it was his groundbreaking work that really gave us the basis for what we know can change the future of cardiac disease. We know that with um, exercise, diet, and stress management, it's the combination, it's the trifecta. You can't do them in isolation. They have to be a combination. But those three together, not only did they reverse cardiac disease and, and change people's lives, they now have studies that show that it, it could take men who had prostate cancer, of the same grade and stage and everything else, same age, 
And when the one group was put on the Ornish program and the other group just was doing watchful waiting, the people in the watchful waiting group had a high, much higher incidence of progression of disease that required additional treatment. But n- nobody in the in the Ornish group progressed. They were able to keep that disease at bay. And prostate cancer is it's it's prevalent in our society, and it's it's an it's a definitely another cancer, just like breast cancer, that is so completely related to lifestyle. And when people talk about lifestyle modification, if they don't include stress reduction and practices such as meditation or yoga or something to get yourself, as I say, get yourself out of your own way, um, you might as well just bang your head upside the wall because you're not going to decrease that cortisol. You're not going to decrease that constant bombardment of your body by those stress hormones. Here's a question for both of you. Um, We talk a lot, Beth, on this show about passion and purpose and, you know, finding joy there's a there's a lot of people out there that that think that's not practical. They say, you know what, I have to make a living and I have to feed my family, and I don't have time to find my passion and my purpose and 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 the joy. Deborah, I'll start with you. What do you say to those people? And I'm sure you come up and you hear this with clients that you work with that are struggling, you know, with both their family and their work. It's it's a very difficult it's a difficult question to hear because there is not one right answer. There are parents, as you're saying, and because my focus is primarily on working parents, there are parents who do need to feed their families, and that's the priority. They're struggling with financial issues. They're struggling with all different kinds of issues. And if they can't find their passion through their work, perhaps they can find it through their families in some way. You know, passion doesn't have to be what you do from 9 to 5. Passion can do can be, you know, what you do from 8 to 8.30 when you snuggle up with your son or your daughter and you're reading a story right you know, that can be your passion i think right. it, 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 you have to define it differently it's a very just like most things in life it's very individualized so it requires you to really be honest with yourself it requires you to really take a look at yourself and say what's really important to me you know the percentage of people who particularly working mothers who are leaving the workforce they're doing it for a reason caregiving that's what it is yeah. for their children so they've made what? that decision yeah one of the things we can do as parents is something that was done not so well in my generation. I, I had so many colleagues in medical school who were in medical school because their parents pushed them in that direction. So the one thing that we can do as parents to stop this madness is to encourage our children to find some, do what they love and love what they do. Because if they find a career and they find a path in life that they absolutely love without the judgment of the income and whatever, um, we're going to create a society of much happier people, and that society of much happier people are going to be much healthier because they're not going to go home and have the extra drinks and the bad food to try to put a Band-Aid on the miserableness that they, that they live in every day of their life. You're absolutely but right. For, I, I, just let me add two quick things before I forget. One of the other issues that is annoying at best is we need to also get rid of all these parenting labels. I just blogged Mm. about this recently. I'm so tired of hearing about helicopter parents and free-range parents, and my favorite new one is snowplow parents. Snowplow parents are the parents who stay really involved with their children who are in college. Well, you don't have to go very far to take a look at the statistics in terms of college students who are crashing and burning every day with anxiety and um, – 
depression, depression and bipolar disorder and everything else. So when it comes to kind of finding your passion, if you as a parent believe that you need to stay in close contact with your college student, go for it, honey. Definitely go for it. I don't really care what colleges say, and I speak about this a lot. You know, I, I remember okay. my son's college orientation hearing one of the administrators basically dismiss the parents and say, okay, well, you know, your child's now an adult, your job is done. And I said to the person sitting next to me, is he insane? If we realize that the brain isn't fully developed until 25 and these kids are 18, I don't think so. So, you know, I think the divisiveness of all these parenting labels is certainly part of it. And the other piece of it, I have to agree with you. I can tell you very quickly about a story. My son had, attend, had um, applied to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and the admissions director was talking about a young man whose parents said, you are going to be an accountant. That's it. We're paying for you to go to college, and you're going to be an accountant. Well, he failed out his second year, and he had tremendous stress-related issues. And he said to his parents, I want to study music. This is what I want to do. And the parents finally relented, and this young man breezed through Berkeley, you know, working professionally now and very, very happy. So as a parent myself, I will say that anything my son ever wants to do, I support it as long as you do it with integrity and you do it with strong values and you do it with a true and honest sense of yourself. And I think that's the other piece of it for us as parents. We need to give our kids a little bit of slack because today, parenting right. kids today is not what it was in the 60s. They've got stressors coming out the wazoo, social media, cyberbullying. I mean, you name it. it there, there's so much pressure on our kids from a very early age. You know, parents are giving kids cell phones at the age of seven. Excuse me? So, you know, the pace, yeah. the pace as well makes it such that we as parents need to kind of take back control. Forget the labels. Yeah. It's too divisive. Forget what the person living next to you or your sister-in-law or your brother is doing. Do what feels right for you. And that comes down to being honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Yeah. You know what the that advice, reminds me? The advice, that I, give, Go the ahead, advice I give my adult patients, my, my adult patients when they come to me with a diagnosis of cancer I say, you know, it may be impractical to change mother-in-laws. It may be impractical to, you know, um, change a job right now. But what you have to do is you've got to find something that you can do on a regular basis that brings you bliss in your life, whether it's going back to painting, like if they had painted in high school or college, or walking in nature. Walking in nature, we know, is, is healing and curative in and of itself. Um, doing something in their life so that they have that go-to spot that increases like their vibration and gets them out of the doldrums of of the things that can actually pull them down. So you may not be, not everybody is, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I, I love what I do and I do what I love. Um, I just do a lot of different things, but that's maybe why I love it because I've got diversity in my professional life. But um, being able to, you know, go to sleep at night knowing that you've made a difference in the world or going to sleep with that sense of, wow, I had a great day and, and thinking of all those things that made you smile because just smiling in and of itself changes your energy. And so, you know, we, we've, we've kind of gotten out of that in our society where this, you know, we, we've turned into the um, instant gratification, the electronic. I mean, as I stand here with my iPhone, you know, in San Diego <laughs> talking to you guys, you know. Use it for the right um, reasons. Right. Te technology should, should not drive us. We need to drive technology. But um, getting to that place where you can let go of the crap of the day and get into a happy space is really something that so many people do not do anymore. They come home from work and they they start to treat their unhappiness with the food, they TV, meditate. the internet, medication, and alcohol. Yeah, and you know those what? Those are the things. 
those are the things that are going to undermine our ability to heal this planet because our planet is desperately ill. We need we need to heal this planet, and you heal the planet by healing the individuals one at a time. Very well said, Beth. We're at the end of the show. Thank you so much, Deborah, My for joining pleasure. us today. Thank you for inviting me. Education Deborah, navigation. I've got to meet you in person. We, we've got. I've got to meet you in person for now. Sure. Absolutely. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. Whether you're looking to buy 